I had no idea Liam was on, so this is going to be completely unprepared. I'll stick to the script. <laughs> I won't go ad lib. All right, 1 to 17. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and with all the power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the Lord, sorry, to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Thanks for that, Ryan. Really appreciate you stepping in at the last minute to cover that. We're not sure what's going to happen in the Bengay household later, though. Well, guys, it's good to be back with you this evening and continuing our series on Second Thessalonians. And uh, this evening we're moving into what is considered the most significant part of Second Thessalonians. This is um, the section that is most significant in Second Thessalonians. And the first couple of verses introduce the general topic stating that now concerning the coming of the Lord... And then it moves to Paul's specific concern that the Thessalonians not believe or be concerned about rumours that Jesus has already returned. And by the contents of this chapter, it appears evident that after receiving the first letter, the congregation seems to have been persuaded that the day of the Lord, which Paul had said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 6, would come like a thief in the night, it would come unexpectedly, had indeed already arrived. And so Paul has learned of this and even though they can't define the exact origin of where this came from, Paul lays out quite clearly that it's simply not possible that Jesus has returned because there's certain types of events and developments that have to occur before Jesus does return and that has not happened. And the call is not to focus on that day or time. This is what Paul continuously says through what he writes. The call is to stand firm in our faith in their faith, and hold fast to the teachings that the apostles gave and for us to hold fast to what Scripture 
calls us to do. So before we get into this, let's just pray. Father God, thank you for your presence with us here this evening. Thank you, Lord, that you are here by power of Holy Spirit. And Lord, our desire is to learn from you. And Lord, I ask that you'll just open our hearts and minds to hear the truth of your word this evening. We want to learn from you. So guide us, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So the first thing we want to talk about is what Paul mentions as far as the day of the Lord is concerned. And, and as we heard from what we have read, Paul turns to this topic of the coming of the Lord. And in 1 and 2 he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, back in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul had laid out quite clearly that Jesus would come when they least expected it, like a thief in the night. And the thing is, you have to be prepared for a thief. You don't know when he's going to come, so you secure your house. You make sure things are ready. And so Paul is saying, that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes. We won't know the day or the hour. And so the responsibility is upon them as people of God to live lives that are honoring to God. To continue in that faith, love and hope that they had been commended for. And to keep doing it more and more. So they're seen within the communities to be loving Jesus. And then when Christ returns, it's not going to be a big issue. They're ready for him because they have been living as he has called them to. And it seems that somehow these guys are a little agitated and a little alarmed because they think that Christ has already returned. And whoever made this claim also seems to have been able to attribute it to Paul somehow. And so that's why these people perhaps took it on board a little bit more. It's like, well, if Paul said it, we should believe it. And it would appear that at the very least, some of the congregation... Believe that what Paul spoke about in 1 Thessalonians 5 has already come to pass. And they believe that Jesus has returned. And we don't have any accurate way of understanding how this information was given. It was by a spirit of prophecy, a spoken word, or maybe even a letter that appears to have come from Paul. But it's obvious that how this message was delivered is not of primary concern or importance to Paul. What is important is that he deals with this claim that Jesus has returned. And Paul speaks clearly about this situation. I believe he states quite clearly that the day has not yet come. And so in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4 he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless... The rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And Paul calls for the church not to be deceived by anyone regarding the coming day of the Lord. Any claim that the day has already come is false because there are certain things that must happen before that occurs. And he says quite clearly that day has not come. And it cannot already be here because there's two very significant things that need to take place. The first event, sorry, the first is an event and the second is the appearance of a certain person. So the event is the rebellion that is going to come. And the second one is 
This man, this person, this man of lawlessness. And it's not clearly stated here, so just in case there's any misunderstanding, this person or man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. That is who is being spoken about here. And he's going to be in the world before he enters the public arena. So he's going to be present, but he's not going to be promoted. He's not going to be recognized until the rebellion comes. And that rebellion is going to begin. And the man of lawlessness will be revealed at that time. And in a way, Paul rebukes the church. Down in verse 5, he says, Didn't I tell you about all these things? When I was present with you, didn't I explain this to you? And what Paul is doing, he's directing them back to what he has already taught them. He's saying, stand upon the things I have shown you. Learn from me. Learn what I have said to you and apply it to your life. And it's the very same for ourselves. When we have God's word, we must dig into it. We must learn from it. We must stand upon it. We must prepare ourselves for what is lying ahead. And so he says, trust that word, believe it, bring it to mind continuously, and it's the same for us. And so it's a lesson not only for that church, but it is for us as well. They have to safeguard themselves against deception and false teaching, just as we do. And we have to hold to the original teaching. We have to believe what Scripture says. That is the foundation for our faith. There will be no new revelation. I firmly believe that. God's word is complete. And in the case of the church, it was about reflecting on what the Apostle Paul had previously told them. And for us, it is that diligent studying of God's word, wrestling with God and with his word, so we can gain a deeper understanding of his word. It's not a superficial reading. And when we think about it, God's scripture challenges us. It instructs us. It rebukes us. And that's what's said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may, may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this is true for us as individuals. We should be digging deeper into God's word, but it's true for us as a people of God as well. We should be have, able to have great conversations with each other, challenging each other over what God's word says. In our last table talks, in our last prayer and praise night for that matter, had a number of situations where we talked about God's word and the differences and the nuances, the way people have been misinterpreting scripture. And we were able to challenge each other about a number of those things. And again, at the prayer and praise night, there were a number of questions asked about God's word and how we apply it to our lives. And I don't know about those who came, but I absolutely love those times. It's, it's, it's those times when I see just that spark in people's eyes where they begin to understand how to engage with God's word. I, I, I do. I just live for that. That's, that's what I want to see more and more in people's lives. And so Paul has previously told the church about these events and the reason, and for some reason we can't clarify things any further than what we already have. There's no more information. And I, I, I don't think that was a mistake. You know, Paul takes it for granted that these guys know what he's talking about. He says, you know about the tribulation. I've spoken to you about that. Sorry, you know about the rebellion. I've spoken to you about that. And he doesn't say any more. And all we get to interpret for original text is this rebellion, the words that are used for the word rebellion here, it could be a political rebellion or it could be a religious rebellion. But apparently in context with the way it's written here, it is actually a combination of both. So 
what we're looking at here is just that increased wrongdoing and general opposition to the things of God. And we have little more than that. But the leader of the rebellion, he will be the man of lawlessness, and there's much more said about him. So this is the man of lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, it says, The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And the introduction lays out this fitting description of this man of lawlessness. We miss it because when we read that section of scripture, we just go, yeah, this is a pretty bad dude. We don't pay attention to actually what this is saying. And so the son of destruction, when I think about the son of destruction, I think that this is a guy who's going to come and just wreak habit and havoc and destroy things and break down um, the way of life as we know it. But that's not what this is actually saying. The son of destruction is one who is destined to ruin. He's doomed. His ultimate end will be his own demise and destruction. And then this guy is also the one who opposes. And this is one who willfully opposes God and his word. As someone who is not only in a sinful state, but someone who is determined to oppose everything to do with God. He won't allow anything of God to, to stand. He wants to knock it down. And the other thing is this guy, he exalts himself. And this is describing someone who not only declares himself to be God, but he will exalt or elevate himself above every and any God. Part of his exaltation will be the result of the many miracles and power that he exhibits. And as said in verse 9, but what is being said here is that this deceiver is going to imitate the true Christ. In any possible way, he wants to appear as Jesus did, as much as possible. And then he's going to sit in the temple of God. Now you imagine Paul writing to these guys. The temple is still standing in Jerusalem. It's got about another 20, 30 years left before it's totally destroyed in AD 70. And so people may believe that he's talking about that temple. And there's certainly been a lot who've argued um, as far as commentators and that is concerned that what it's talking about is someone who is going to be enthroned in the new temple that is going to be built in Jerusalem. And there's been some very interesting news recently that um, the mosque in Jerusalem isn't actually built on the site where the temple was. The temple site is actually 50 metres further on. They've found the foundations just recently. So realistically, the temple could be built very, very soon. And so this argument is that this guy is going to sit on a throne in God's temple. I really don't think it matters. I'm not going to argue either way as to what this is going to be. I'm not going to say that's wrong. I'm not going to say it's right. But the thing is, this person will take a position or a place that is rightfully God's. And he's not going to sit alongside God. He's not going to allow that. He's going to put God under his feet, or so he thinks. And as far as the world sees him, he will be the only God. He wants to appear as the Almighty. And so he's going to look at dethroning the one true God so that he can have ultimate power on this earth. So it stands to reason the next thing he does is proclaims himself to be God. And the words used here make it quite clear that this proclamation is about him being sovereign. 
about being over all. And he ascends to a position of being above any other God there ever has been, including the God that we worship. He will set himself up as the sole object of worship. He won't allow people to worship anyone or anything else. And he will forbid people to worship others. Anyone who does, if we're found worshipping God, will be persecuted. That's the way this is going to be. And there's been many attempts over the years to work out who this guy is going to be. You could possibly rattle off a dozen, could you? Close, close. And it's interesting that people seem to want to know who this guy is going to be, this man of lawlessness. But identifying the person and the time that this is going to happen isn't the most important thing for us. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians, Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Paul is telling them to bring back to mind the things that he had said previously. He's saying, do not be swayed by what you hear. Do not be swayed by this message that you have heard, which is counter to what I told you. Think about what I told you. Dwell upon that. Live in that. And we're called to do the same. We are called to reflect on God's word and live in that truth. Whatever comes against us, if it doesn't line up with God's word, we need to reject it. We need to put it aside and we need to refocus on what God's word is. Paul and the Thessalonians know what is holding back this man of lawlessness, but we're not given that privilege. We don't know. And it's one of those things that Paul discussed with them that's not part of this letter. And uh, there have been many suggestions over the years that whatever held this back was perhaps the Roman Empire. It was the principle of law and order. It was the Jewish state. It was Satan. It was a force or a person who was hostile to God. It was actually God and his power. It was Holy Spirit. It was the proclamation of the gospel. It was one of the angels restraining evil until the gospel has been preached to all men. Some of those sound totally whacked out. And some of them sound as if they could be. And there's only a few people who believe that the restraining force is a force of evil rather than good. Most actually believe this restraining force is a force of good, which I think we would agree with as well. But in all of those suggestions, in each and every case, there's only a handful of people that believe each one of those could potentially be that which holds back that restraining force. And so what we have to decide when we read things like that is exactly what Augustine decided when he studied this. I don't know. I really don't know. I've got no answer. And you know what? That's okay. We, we, we don't have to have the answers. And I think sometimes God deliberately doesn't give us the answers. We'd be so messed up if we knew so much more than we do. But what we do know is that when that restraining force is removed... The lawless one is going to be revealed. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 and 8. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so what we need to keep in mind is that this lawlessness is already at work. That's what this passage actually says. And there are many who say that this is all about love. Oh, sorry. 
The man of lawlessness and lawlessness itself opposes the things of God. There'll be believers who agree and follow some after the works that are the foundations of the arrival of this man. And it's obvious, the elephant in the room. When we think of the sanctity of marriage and what God calls marriage to be between a man and a woman, that there's this lawlessness from our beliefs that has come in. We've just had this vote. And the majority of Australians have said, apparently, that we should have same-sex marriage. And that's so counter to God's clear teaching. And unfortunately, there's many Christians who believe they should be allowed to marry. They should be accepted within the church. And there's already pressure for pastors to agree to marry those in same-sex relationships. And the mystery that is spoken of in this passage of Scripture, scripture the mystery of lawlessness, is that force that is acting behind what is going on. And the biggest argument that the Christians involved in this say is, God is love. This is love. If we love God, we can't oppose it. Love wins. And it seems like they throw everything else out the door just to accommodate this. Now, I'm not saying that we should not love these people. That's not what this is about. And in fact, I've ministered to many people in same-sex relationships. But I can't support same-sex marriage. I believe it goes against God and his teaching. And so we as a nation, just as Pastor Darrell said this morning, are making decisions that are opposed to God's moral law and his clear teaching. And we need to be called back to what God's word says. We need to understand God's word so much more. It's the only thing that we are going to have to stand on because we are going to get pummeled with so much more stuff in the next who knows how many years. And so we need to know the truth of the gospel message. We need to know what it says. And I love what it says in verse 8. This guy, this man of lawlessness, is going to be incredibly powerful. He's going to do some fantastic miracles, so much so that some people are going to be deceived and follow him, believing he's going to be the Christ. But when Jesus appears, he's going to kill him with the breath of his mouth. He's not even going to have to raise his fists. And I have this image of you know, Jesus arriving and this guy coming up against him and Jesus just going... And the guy just... Boom, just like... Nothing. Because that's going to be the difference. You know, the people are going to think this guy is incredible. He's got so much power. He's got so much mind. But in the presence of a holy, righteous God, he's got nothing. And, you know, that's what we need to stand on. That's what Paul is saying to these guys. You worship the one true God. This guy can do nothing. He can come against you. He can cause all sorts of problems. But God holds you firmly in his hand. He can destroy your body. But that makes no difference because God holds you secure for eternity. You are going to be in his presence. And what an incredible thing that is. And I don't think we fully get that. I don't think we understand just how amazing it is that we have a God who loves and cares for us so much and holds us like that. 
And we've got this, this Jesus who's going to triumph over this guy without even raising a sweat. In fact, he's not even going to think about this. The very presence of his appearance is going to wipe this guy out. It'll wipe me out too. I mean, can you imagine? Just think about John on the Isle of Patmos. You know, this is a guy who dearly loved Jesus, a guy who hadn't seen Jesus for quite some time. And then he gets this vision of Jesus glorified. What did he do? He didn't go, mate, and run into his arms. He just went, I'm dead. That's what a glorified Christ does, even to his closest dear friends. It's incredible. We, we, we won't be able to behold it. We'll be face down. And this guy, this guy's totally annihilated. He's just like dust and ashes, gone. Because Jesus breathed. Go figure. In case there's any doubt about who's behind this man of lawlessness, Paul lays it out very clearly. Man, am I behind? Sorry. There you go. Oops, I just clicked twice. Sweet. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan, all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sent them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And a Satan who empowers the man of lawlessness and he gives him signs and wonders and everything that he does and has done, but he can only deceive those who are perishing. These are the ones who have chosen to not believe in Jesus Christ and his saving grace. This is a message that is presented week in and week out in this place. And there are still non-Christians sitting amongst us. Pray for softening of hearts. We're not going to bludgeon them into the kingdom. We want Jesus to change their hearts so they come to accept him. So these are the ones who have chosen not to believe in Jesus Christ. But these are also the ones who have refused to love the truth of God. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians and to us, we are responsible for the decisions that we make in our life. God is not going to force us to follow him. He invites us. He instructs us. He draws us. And the decisions we make decide whether we are in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. He calls us to submit our lives to him. And, you know, we don't talk about repentance much in our churches these days. But that is what having faith in Christ is all about. Coming to that point where we realize we're wrong. And when we realize we're wrong, we need to repent. And so the first time we do that, I've said this a thousand times, is our justification being put back in right relationship with Jesus. But then we're called to sanctify ourselves, to each and every day repent before the Lord and then ask the Lord to use us for his glory, for his purposes, for his kingdom, those holy instruments that are set aside for God's purposes. That is what we're called to do. And so if we do that, we're loving Christ. That's the life we're called to live. And not only loving him, we're loving what he calls us to do. And we're being obedient to all he calls us to do. So we're responsible for those decisions. Our salvation, our life with God comes at a huge cost, massive cost. And we choose to accept or reject it each and every day. We must choose to submit to God and his authority or we're rejecting him. When you look at that, think about the position that puts you in. If people choose to reject God, he lets them go. 
I always see God as a perfect gentleman. If you make choices in your life, he says, you have your free will. I, I want you to be with me. I want you to come to me. But if you choose to reject me and go your own way, I, I'm not going to stand in your way. That's your choice. I'll respect that. But there's consequences. They'll either come in this life or they'll come in the next one. Some people say, how could God judge and cast people into hell? God's not responsible for that outcome. His actions are a result of the decisions that each and every one of us make. If they choose to reject him, he'll allow them to follow that path of their choices and those consequences that are clearly laid out in Scripture. That's all doom and gloom, isn't it? But it's true, and we need to hear it. That's not where this ends, praise God. Paul talks to the church, and he finishes this section with thanksgiving and encouragement. And the incredible thing is, this is how he starts the letter. But he always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and the belief in God. And the but here can't be lost, hey? We, we, we need to understand what's going on here. Paul has just finished laying out what is going to happen, not only to the men of lawlessness, but also those who choose not to love God and love his laws and rejecting him in that process. And then Paul says, but we. He's pointing to the contrast. He's saying, this isn't you. This is what's going to happen in the world, but this isn't you guys. You guys, you're standing firm. You have a purpose and a reason that God has called you to, and you're following that purpose and reason. You are seeking God in all that you're doing. You're loving more. You're hoping more. You're having more faith, and that is what God wants you to do. You are beloved of God because you are sanctified. You're setting yourselves apart each and every day. And you are those holy instruments for God's use and purposes because of the work of Holy Spirit in your lives. And you're doing it more and more. Keep doing it. That's what we want to see. God has chosen you. He has called you. And he's going to complete the good work that he has started in you, regardless of what's going to come against you. Paul has told them again and again, they're going to face persecution. They're going to face opposition. And he's saying, keep on keeping on. Don't worry about those things. Christ holds you secure in their hand. And he's going to guide them through everything that they are going to face. So he calls them to stand firm. To hold to everything that they've been told by the apostles. By their spoken word and the letters that they have sent. What's that mean for us? I mean, there's a lot of teaching there. And we could have gone really deep on some of those things, but it's just a skim over the top. Can I encourage you to go back and read this chapter of Scripture and dwell upon it? Hear what God's saying to you? But I want to tell you, I don't think it's any secret. It's been a very difficult time for Elena and I here at SDBC. But I believe without a shadow of a doubt, God has a purpose and a reason for each one of us. And I, I just so want to see people realize that in their lives. I so want to see people engage with God in such a way that they're on their knees asking him for what 
He wants them to do in this place and further afield. I want to see people engaging in their universities, in their schools, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces. I want to see this place turned around so we are so passionate about talking about the things of God, people cannot shut us up. When I ask for good news stories, I want to have to say in about an hour and a half, hey, guys, 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 we've, we've got to pray and get out of here. I mean, seriously. That's what I want to happen. And I'm hoping that you want to be on board with that. You want to see Christ active in everyone's life. So when you're having a down week, you can say to someone, hey, what is God doing in your life? And when they tell you the three or four or five or six things that Christ is doing in their life for that week, you get encouraged, you get spurred on, iron sharpening iron. And you have this desire to serve him more in your places because of what is going on around you. You can see that God is active. Each of us have a purpose and a reason for firstly being in God's kingdom, but then for being here. He loves you, he values you, and he's called you. And he will work through you if you submit yourself to him. Just let him do what he wants to do. And I don't know what Andrew was thinking when he brought up Colossians earlier this evening, but listen to this. How cool is this? And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful. Listen to this. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Thankfulness for what? For the faith that you as an individual have, for the fact that you've got people around you who will sing those psalms and hymns with you, that we can speak to each other in wisdom from God's word and encourage and spur each other on. We need to ensure that we know the word of God, not just reading the Bible, but digging deeper into it, studying it, trying to see what God's saying to us, dwelling upon his word. No more superficial reading of it. Spend time reading huge chunks of it. And we need to know his word so much deeper. If we keep on the slide we're going, this is not going to be as readily as available as what it presently is. And in fact, the times are coming when there'll be more and more countries where you're arrested for holding a Bible. There's countries in the world where that's the case now. We just take it so for granted in this, in this, this country here. We need to get this know, to, to know this word, not only for that reason, but also so we know when someone puts a little twist on the truth, we can pick it up. We can understand that they're not giving us the absolute truth. And so I, I say again, I've said it before, Pastor Darrell actually said it this morning as well, do not take what we say from the front as gospel. We endeavour as pastors to give you the word of God as it stands. We don't want to distort the truth of God's word, but... We're human. We sometimes get things wrong. And so you need to go home. You need to check what we've said. We need, you need to make sure that it lines up with God's word. And if we've got it wrong, come and speak to us. Talk to us about it. We'd love to sit down and go through God's word with you. And so I encourage you again, go home and revisit the pages that, that we've quoted and that we've said. This is what God says. This is this. This is that. And make sure what we say is true. Don't just blindly accept what we say. Regardless of what comes against us or when evil seems to prevail, and evil has the victory, that's what it appears. God reigns supreme. He has never lost control. He will have the ultimate victory. 
the breath of Jesus' mouth gone. And keep in mind, we are not to focus on what is going on around us. We are not to focus on who is coming in the future, how bad that's going to be. We are to focus on serving God. We are to be found living for him. And if we do that, we've got nothing else to worry about. Our preparation for Jesus' return is to live for him every moment of every day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this evening. Thank you for how it's challenged me. And Lord, I'll pray that I've been able to articulate what you taught me in a way that we, as a people of God, understand. And so, Lord, I pray that for each one of us, we'll have a desire to get to know you more. We will find time to just spend heaps of time reading your word, understanding it, digging deeper, getting to know it, Lord. And Father, we just ask that you grow each one of us in faith, hope, and love, just as you grew the Thessalonian church. Give us that desire to serve you as we should, Lord. And Father, give us a passion and hunger to grow each other up in the faith as well. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.